Today's reading is Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The Word of the Lord. So a couple of weeks ago on Father's Day, um, after church, we went up to my in-law's place in Shoreview, and we celebrated Father's Day there with them, and then there was a few other birthdays and, and a graduation, and so we went up there uh, to just celebrate all, all that stuff there. And um, Amy's cousin was there, who she's going to be a senior now at Iowa State University. And somehow, the topic of uh, tattoos came up, and uh, the sermon series that I'm doing came up. And so I heard an amazing tattoo horror story that I just have to share with you. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, so when she was a senior in high school, so four years ago, um, her best friend had just turned 18, and she decided this is time for me to go and get my first tattoo. And so Amy's cousin went along with her to provide the moral support that one needs when one is taking the monumental life step of getting your first tattoo. And so her friend, she was getting a tattoo. She wanted this to be meaningful. You know, you're going to have this on the body, your body for the rest of your life. And so she chose her favorite, a reference, to have a reference to her favorite Bible verse. Psalm 27, 1 which reads, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? A a lovely verse. Certainly tattoo-worthy, for sure. And you can see, uh, Bob, if you can pull up the picture of the tattoo. Okay, so you can see there is that that reference to Psalm 27.1 right there. But it wasn't until she got home that this is like one of those like highlights for kids things. Can you see what's wrong with the tattoo? <laughs> yes. She thought it was a reference to Psalm 27.1, but instead it was P-Slam 27.1. Just switching a couple letters and the rest of your life, you got P-Slam on your body. <laughs> And so she went home, and, and, and you, can pull it, you can put it down now. Uh, she went home, and she was in tears, and so she begged Amy's friend, please call the tattoo parlor and see what they can do about it, um, to which they, uh, she got laughter, and uh, <laughs> that sucks, on the other end of the phone. And that was that. She'll never forget Psalm 27.1 for the rest of her life. And so what does that have to do with our series on um, the Psalms that we're doing this summer? Nothing. But I thought it was a funny story that included the word psalm, and so I figured that I would, I figured I would share it with you all. All right, so uh, like I said, we're, we're doing this series at the beginning of summer on the psalms, and I don't want to belabor the point, but I just think it's worth remembering week after uh, week. And if it's your first time, this will be a, sort of a good uh, sort of stake in the ground to see where we're at. So we got three different kinds of psalms. If you remember what they are, you can shout them out. We got psalms of orientation. Psalms of disorientation, and then psalms of reorientation, okay? So psalms of of orientation are like the bedrock theological principles on which we ground our life. 
Uh, Psalms of disorientation are psalms that speak to when life happens and chaos happens and we're just wondering where God is, calling out from our deepest distress. And then those psalms of reorientation testify to the amazingness of God's grace that shows up at an unexpected time in an unexpected place and lifts us right out of the pit. So, uh, and if we were kind of putting this in more theological language, I think this is sort of helpful to think about it. So we got, you know, orientation, disorientation, reorientation. We could think of it in terms of psalms of creation, fall, and redemption. You know, that's, that's, that's the theological movement that we see happening in the psalms. So we got three kinds of psalms, four different ways that they speak to God, kind of address God. You're great. Help. Uh, I trust you and thank you. And so when we're, we're, doing, we're reading through the Psalms on our own, I think these can be really helpful things to hold in our head to see what exactly is happening in the Psalms. And so this morning we're going to look at the very last Psalm that there is, Psalm 150, which is a hymn of total praise that closes the entire collection. And I think that there's a reason why this is, is the last Psalm, why this was placed at the end. It sends a message, and I think the message is this. When you live your life in the kind of the with God life that is um, imagined by the Psalms, in the manner of the Psalms, your life ends this way. It ends in praise. And so you have this kind of book ending of the Psalms. Psalm 1 is about sort of the two choices that are before you, um, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And throughout the Psalms, there's these innumerable twists and turns and ups and downs. And there's this sense that if you're walking with God, you know, you might not make it. Sort of, you might have picked the wrong road because it seems like other people are doing a lot better than you. But then, here we get to the end. And there's just this shout of hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We've made it. And Psalm 150 opens and closes with this word. It's translated in our, in our version, but it just has that word, hallelujah. It opens with hallelujah. It closes with hallelujah, which simply means praise the Lord. And so the message we can take to heart from the Psalms is that the with God life ends with praise. And Psalm 50, though, it's simple and it's relatively straightforward. It has much to teach us about a life of praise. Specifically, the where, uh, the why, the how, and the who of praise. So that's kind of the flow we're going to use to examine and study this psalm this morning. The where of praise, the why of praise, the how of praise, and, and the who of praise. But before we jump into that, I just want to say something about why the Psalms are so valuable in terms of giving us the language of prayer and the language of praise. C.S. Lewis wrote, and it's, it's wonderful, he said, The most valuable things the Psalms do for me is express the same delight in God which made David dance. And he's referring here, of course, there's this famous incident in the scriptures when the ark of the Lord, the, the box that contained the, the Ten Commandments and it had the, the, the cover with the cherubim on it and, you know, was believed between their, the wings of these cherubim, that's where God's presence is located. And so the Philistines had taken this and this was bad and finally it came back and they brought it back into Jerusalem and David is dancing in front of it and, and he's just going wild. He's, he's dancing like a crazy man and one of his wives uh, sees this happening and she's humiliated for him and she says david you you embarrassed yourself in front of the entire country is, is this how a king is supposed to act 
And David hears this and he says, well, you know, you haven't seen anything yet. I will become even more undignified than this. And so Psalms like Psalm 150, they give us this language of total praise that is often, I think, lacking in our post-enlightenment religiosity. And it still lives on. There are certain circles of the church where, where this still lives on. Definitely in the charismatic and, and Pentecostal circles of the church, there is still this sense of a total abandonment of the self in praise to God. It's a spirituality that isn't, you know, focused on the ethical, here's how you're supposed to live your life, or focused on the, the didactic or the doctrinal, okay, here are the things that you're supposed to believe, which are the modes of Christian discourse that, that most of us are usually used to, that when we're, we're, we're worshiping, we're talking about, okay, how should I live my life, or what kind of things should I believe in my head about God. But the spirituality we see in the Psalms, it's, it's, it's a kind of pure doxological way of living meaning just giving glory to God that's missing when we focus on, on, our, on our heads or what we do with our lives. And, and the Psalms capture this so beautifully, and we need this because it's missing, missing. And so Lewis, he finishes the quote by saying this. He says, I am not saying that this kind of same delight in God that made David dance is so pure or profound a thing as the love of God reached by the greatest Christian saints and mystics, but I am not comparing it with that. I am comparing it with the merely dutiful church-going and laborious saying our prayers to which most of us are, thank God, not always, but often reduced. Against that, it stands out as something astonishingly robust, virile, and spontaneous, something we may regard with an innocent envy and may hope to be infected by as we read. And so my hope and prayer this morning is that Psalm 150 infects us in this way as we study it this morning. That we can be infected with that same delight in God that made David dance. And made the psalmist shout, hallelujah. All right, so first, there is the where of praise. So we get the beginning of Psalm 150 and we get this, you know, admonition, this command, praise the Lord. And then the psalmist gives the, the psalmist gives the dual where's of praise. Okay, where are you going to do this? And the two places are praise God in his sanctuary and in his mighty heavens. And there's a couple things going on here worth noting. First, of course, you know, we can praise God anywhere, where, wherever we want to. We are, called, we are called to praise God in the places he has appointed for this task. That's what sanctuary means. It means a, a place set apart by God for the purpose of worship. Like the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament and the church in the New. And so this does give lie to the idea of people who say, well, I don't go to church. Nature is my church. Sure, let that be your church, but that doesn't mean that you get to neglect the call to gather with others to sing hallelujah in one voice. God sets the time and place for worship, not us. But what about praising God in his mighty heavens? This is really interesting here. The Hebrew word for, um, for heavens is the same word that comes from day two in, in creation when God makes the expanse. It's rakia. That's what it's talking about. And so the idea here is that worship on earth echoes and is a part of the worship of God that is also happening in heaven. 
And so when we, get, when we gather in worship to sing hallelujah, we're not just part of a choir. You know that everywhere, all over, not just you know, Minneapolis or Minnesota or the United States, but all over the world, people are gathering this day to, to praise God. And so we're part of this global chorus. But we're also part of this celestial cosmic chorus as well. This great cosmic choir. And so it's this amazing picture of the scope of our praise. It's universal in every sense of the word. And so our little songs of praise this morning in this sanctuary echo across time and space, across heaven and earth. And so when you put it like that, it, it's sort of awe-inspiring that this morning is not just us here singing some songs, but God has called us to be a part of this beautiful choir singing everywhere so that's the where of praise where do you praise god at the times and places appointed by god along with all the other saints in heaven and on earth and then we get to the why of praise in verse two it says praise him for his mighty acts and his exceeding greatness we're to break this down we'd say we're to praise god for god's actions and god's attributes Mighty acts is just this shorthand way of saying everything that God has done on our behalf. It encompasses the entire scope of the history of salvation. So when we praise God, we're remembering everything that God has done for us. Start from the beginning, go to the end. We praise God because he created us, because he chose us, because he rescued us from slavery, because he guided us in the wilderness. Because he gave us the moral law to live our life by. Because he gave us an inheritance. Because he brought us back from exile. Because he became flesh in Jesus Christ for us. Because he showed us the kingdom. Because he died for our sins and rose for new life. Because he sent his spirit to live in our hearts. And so when we think of everything that God has done. What can we do but sing God's praises? We praise God for God's mighty acts. So we don't forget We never forget. Week after week, month after month, year after year, we are reminded of everything that God has done. And so all our songs of praise are a response to that story with joy and gratitude. So we praise God for his acts, his mighty acts, everything he's done for us. And then we also praise God for his attributes. That's what's captured by this phrase, his exceeding greatness. We praise God for God's sheer godness, as it were. Our constant reminder that God is God and we are not. Only God is perfect in holiness, justice, love, and faithfulness. And so when we praise God for being God, we are reminded again and again that God is the sum of all perfections. And though we can chase after these things that make God God in other places, we won't be satisfied until we reach their true source. So we can look for perfect love in our families or in uh, romantic relationships. And we can seek perfect justice in our quest for social righteousness to build a just and equitable society. And those are not bad things. It's not bad to seek those things. It's just that ultimately only God embodies what we so desperately desire. Only God perfectly embodies and encompasses what our hearts are craving after. 
In the words of St. Augustine, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Only God is worthy of our worship because only God can satisfy the longings of our heart. All right, so we got the where of worship and the why of worship for God's actions and God's attributes. But now we get to the longest section, verses 3 through 5, the how of worship. And it's basically a long list of instruments, which says, I mean, just simply that the worship of God is supposed to be noisy and musical. And we know that you know, there's just something special about music that enables our worship to transcend mere words. There's a reason that we don't speak these words. We, we, we sing them. Something happens when we sing. Our heads and our hearts are joined into one. Music is an appropriate vehicle for our praises because only music can do that. And the list of specific instruments, it's not important. I mean, it's, it's good to note that this encompasses sort of all the known types of instruments, the, the wind instruments and the stringed instruments and percussive instruments and even the human body. Basically, the message seems to be whatever you got, whatever instruments you got, they can and should be used in praising God. And so the power of music, just the power of music to be a proper vehicle of our praise, to do what mere words alone can't, is one of the reasons why it's been so important throughout the course of church history and Christian worship, and why it's been the source of so much controversy in church history. People, there was this thing, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but people would talk about in the 1990s, you know, there was this thing called the worship wars that were raging. It was sort of like hymns and organs and choirs versus guitars and drums and praise songs, you know. And you sort of had to draw a line in the sand and choose which side you were on, reverence or relevance. And if you go back and read church history, I mean, since the very beginning, they've been fighting about what sort of music should be included in the church and what kind of instruments. And so, uh, as it says in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Even though we like to think the moment in time that we're living in is the most unique and special and nothing like this has ever happened before. It's happened before. But you had in the 1990s this battle between, you know, relevance and reverence, um, and churches split, and feelings were hurt, and there was more heat than light. But as with most things in this world, it's not an either-or, but a both-and. And so I think when we're thinking about the how of worship, and, and the how of music, and the role it plays in our worship, there's really three useful questions we can use to think about. The first question is, what does the Bible say? What does Scripture say? And this must seem like the sort of duh question. But so often when it comes to music, we sort of start with our own personal preferences and prejudices before turning to Scripture to sort of support what already conclusion we've already reached. And so the Bible commends the use of music and worship using the whole variety of available instrumentation. And beyond that, the Bible says nothing about style or genre. And so I think this, this question, what does Scripture say, it... it instead of narrowing our focus, sort of widens it, widens the aperture. And it should lead us to a greater degree of openness and humility. Openness because the Bible seems pretty liberal when it comes to music, and so keep an open mind with what kind of music can be worshipful. Don't be a snob or a fuddy-duddy. 
And humility because we recognize that our personal preferences are just that. They are personal and they are preferences. They aren't the gospel. We like what we like. That's okay. Other people like what they like. And we, when we just acknowledge that and own that, our conversations about music and worship and the church uh, puts us all on level ground. So that's the first question we think about. What, how, do we use, how, how do we use music in worship? What does Scripture say? And the second question is, how can we engage in biblical worship that is cu- in culturally appropriate ways? So this is the question of contextualization. And we see even with this list of instruments, these were the instruments that were known to the Israelites from the world of the ancient Near East. From what they saw in you know, Canaan and what they had seen in Egypt, these were basically all the instruments that, that they knew about. They were culturally appropriate. And so then that's the question, how can we worship in ways that are biblically faithful and culturally resonant? How can our use of music and worship help us to fulfill our mission to reach people in our time and place with the gospel? And the wonderful thing about that, it means we don't have to choose you know, between tradition or innovation. We can hold the great tradition of sacred music in one hand and the musical idioms of contemporary culture in the other and bring them together and see what happens, what God can do. We have the freedom to be eclectic in appropriating the best of what the tradition and the best of culture have to offer in pursuit of our common mission. I didn't tell Katie to do anything this morning. She just chose the worship set, but she did choose music that spanned six centuries of sacred music. That's not too bad. Six centuries is like really, really good. I mean, because we don't have like musical notation or records for stuff from like before 14 or 1500. So basically our available uh, slot of material, she chose something from it all. Wonderful. Contextualization. Finding the best that we have and using it to fulfill our mission. And that's the last question is, what will help people in this culture and at this time worship God in spirit and truth? So the question then isn't, what do I like? Because that's different for everyone. The question is, what am I willing to sacrifice in order to help people in my community respond to God's call to praise? And so those are the questions that we're doing our best to answer with God's help, doing our our best to wrestle with these questions surrounding the how of praise in ways that are biblically faithful and take the best of what our uh, brothers and sisters in faith have, have given to us and looking out at our mission in the culture that's trying to sing, how do we do this well for God, to sing God's praises? All right, so that's, that's, that's the how. And then lastly, we get to the who of praise. And the who seems pretty broad. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And so this summons, this invitation to worship is universal. And, but it's not just everything that has breath, but everything that has nefesh, which isn't just breathing in a generic sense. This is the breath of life breathed into the creation by God. This is divine breath, divine life. And so the beautiful picture here is that God gives creation the very breath of life, so that we might breathe it back out to him in praise. He breathes that life into us, and we breathe that back out to him in praise. 
Reminds me of the question from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what's the primary purpose of human life? And we'll kind of, we're doing this for our confession of faith today too. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. Psalm 150 is just that kind of life. A life that glorifies and enjoys God. Where, where, where does that kind of life take place? In the sanctuary, which Jesus defined not as a place, but a people that he redeemed. And why do we praise him? Because of God's mighty acts. The mightiest acts of all being the greatest acts of weakness. Being born of, as a baby and dying on the cross. And because of God's godness, which we see most clearly in the glory of the crucified one. And how do we praise God? With everything we've got. Because Jesus gave everything he had for us. And who? Everything that has breath. Because Jesus breathed out his last on Good Friday and said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, my breath, my nephesh. And after he was risen, he breathed out his spirit on his disciples, that, that breath of resurrection life. And found the church so that we could be filled with that life and breathe that same life-giving breath into the world. And just one last thing that I have to share. In the course of my studies for Psalm 150 this week, I found this quote that I thought was so good. And it was uh, from a man named Cyril. And so Cyril was the bishop of Jerusalem in the middle of the 4th century. Like, let's say 350, basically. And so he was writing in response to critics, uh, pagan critics of Christianity, who said, you know, forget about trying to glorify and enjoy God. God is infinite. God is eternal. God is beyond our capacity to understand. Our language and our minds are finite. So when you praise God, you blaspheme, because how can finite human beings say anything about the infinite, eternal, perfect God? You can't understand God well enough to say anything about God, let alone to praise God. Human words are worthless before the divine. It's best to be silent. That's what high-minded pagan critics of Christianity were saying. And so here's what Cyril has to say. He says, But some will say, if the divine nature is incomprehensible, then why do you discourse about these things? Well then, because I cannot drink up the whole stream, am I not even to take a sip to slake my thirst? Or because I cannot take in all the sunlight owing to the constitution of my eyes, am I not even to gaze on what is sufficient for my wants? Or entering a vast orchard, because I cannot eat all the fruit therein, would you have me go away completely hungry? I praise and glorify him who made us, for it is a divine command that says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. I am endeavoring now to glorify the Lord, not to describe him. Though I know that I shall, fa- shall fall short of glorifying him worthily, still I consider it a godly work to try all the same. I love those words. I know that I shall fall short of glorifying him worthily, still I consider it a godly work to try all the same. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let's pray.